I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey guys, it's Luke. You know what's about to happen? Yes, indeed. Livewire is exactly what's about to happen. This week, though, we're doing it a little differently. In a very special summer hiatus episode of the show, we're looking back at some guests who've made us think about things a little differently. Like author Susan Cain, who extols the virtues of introverts and tells us what she learned at a Tony Robbins personal power seminar. One thing I got out of it was that it reminded me how much I really like to do aerobics. Also, storyteller Stephen Tobolowski swings by, and he reveals his similarity to an insect in the order Lepidoptera. And then it hit me in that one moment, we were exactly the same. The moth and me. The late, great David Rakoff also makes an appearance and talks about whether or not we're ushering in an era of pessimism. I think if you think about what's going on, I can't imagine we could be in any other kind of age. And much more from autism expert Temple Grandin and improvisational pianist Alfredo Rodriguez. All right, here we go with this special edition of Live Wire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we're looking back at some of our guests who had us thinking differently. And the guy we're going to start with is named Stephen Tobolowski. Now, you may or may not know that name, but you probably know Stephen Tobolowski from the time he said this to Bill Murray over and over again in the movie Groundhog Day. Phil? Phil Connors? Hey, 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 now don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. That's Stephen Tobolowski as Ned Needlenose Ryerson. He's also an author and has his own radio show called The Tobolowski Files on Public Radio International. And on that show, he tells these true and often really hilarious stories. Now, the story he told our show in front of the live crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater, it was about how we can learn a lot by seeing ourselves in other people. Or, in this case, other insects. This is Stephen Tobolowski. Thank you. Uh, What I like to do is tell true stories from my life. This is one of them, and I call it the moth and the window. In the mid-1970s, I came out to Los Angeles to become an actor. It only took me three years before I realized it was impossible. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get an agent. I couldn't even work for free. I performed on one show where I had to pay the producer $100 to cast me. (laughs) It was not money well spent. Opening night, no one was in the audience. But the bright spot was I was able to meet other struggling actors, and one of them was someone named Tom Calloway, and he was friends with Pat Riley, the new coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers made it to the playoff that year, led by someone named Magic Johnson, and there was Kareem and James Worthy. It was showtime, and we had tickets on the 10th row. I was in heaven. My car was a dented Oldsmobile that was on its last legs. It had no heater, no windshield wipers. The front window was of the hand-crank variety, and it was permanently in the down position. Not completely down. Uh, There was about one 
inch of window sticking up from the bottom, but it was hardly protection from the elements. The only thing I had to keep me warm was the rock and roll on the radio. It was freezing that night on the way to the arena. I switched the radio from Shake It Up by the Cars to the game. It was about 15 minutes before the tip-off. I pulled behind a long line of cars headed into the parking area, and that's when I noticed I was not alone. There was a big moth in the car. It began fluttering around my face, and I swatted at it, trying to encourage it to fly out of the permanently open front window. But it only flew into the part of the window that was closed, on the bottom. The bottom inch. And then it flew right back into my face. I spoke to the moth with quiet authority. I said, go on, go on, get, get out of here. Now, it was ten minutes before tip-off, but the line of cars hadn't budged. I stuck my head out the window and yelled, Let's go! Come on! I honked once. I sat back in my seat. I was steaming. The moth fluttered around my head again. Again, I tried to knock it out of the window, and again, it kept banging against that bottom inch that was standing up, and he did it again and again and again, and I muttered, Stupid, idiotic moth! What a moron! On the radio, they started introducing the players. Now I was in a panic. There had to be some sort of problem up ahead. Maybe someone didn't have change. Maybe the parking lot was full. I started honking my horn and yelling, Come on! Come on! Move it! The moth tried to fly up my nose. I yelled, Look, moth, you have the entire window. It's completely open. Go, or I will kill you. I've often talked tough to insects. The game started. I screamed. I finally got out of my car to see what the holdup was. And then I saw, to my horror, I had been waiting in a line of parked cars. (laughs) I had been honking and yelling at no one. Upon further examination, there wasn't even a gate up ahead of me. The entrance to the arena was only a product of my own wishful thinking. Inside the car, I saw the moth fly into the window once again, and then it hit me. In that one moment, we were exactly the same. (laughs) The moth and me. He couldn't see the open window. I couldn't see that I was behind a line of parked cars. It was all a matter of perspective. Since then, I've had many walls thrown at me in life, hardships, setbacks. But because of my friend the moth... I learned that sometimes a wall is not a wall, but from a different angle, it could be a bridge. That's the way the world teaches us to see with new eyes. That was Stephen Tobolowski on this special edition of Livewire Radio. My name's Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Stephen's latest book is The Dangerous Animals Club, and you can always hear him on his radio program, The Tobolowski Files. We're looking back at some of the conversations and performances with people that made us think about the world a little differently. By the way, a lot of these interviews were conducted by the previous host of the show, who is now the head writer and producer of the program, Courtney Hameister. So you get to have a little trip down memory lane with Courtney. Coming this fall, though, I will be officially installed as the new host of Livewire, which I'm very excited about. So, um, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Luke Burbank. I'm a Taurus. Uh, My turn-ons include long walks on the beach and hosting public radio shows. So this is actually perfect. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between shy people and introverts? I didn't really know what the difference was, but Susan Cain does. She's a writer, and her book is called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. It was featured on the cover of Time Magazine. Now, she is an introvert whose TED Talk has been viewed over 3.8 million times. So what exactly makes an introvert brave enough to get in front of thousands of people and give a talk? How about the desire to change the way people think about introverts? Susan talked to our former host, Courtney Hameister, about what fueled her through years of research. The impetus for writing the book is that I've kind of been living the book my entire life since I was four years old. I think I've really been thinking about these questions. But in terms of 
why the process took that seven years, I knew that this was an incredibly counterintuitive thesis. So I felt like every single, the thesis being, introverts actually have this kind of secret power that no yeah. one is paying attention to, um, and it's grossly undervalued in this culture. And I knew it was so counterintuitive that I wanted every single assertion I made to be backed up by lots of research. Yeah, you note everywhere that everything came from. Um, you opened the book talking about Rosa Parks. What made her a good model for you to talk about the power of introverts? I was struck by Rosa Parks, and I think this, she died before I actually started working on the book, but I still remember the day that she died and listening to the obituaries that were read on the radio and how struck I was by them. They were talking about how she had been timid, um, petite, soft-spoken, um, unassuming. Yeah. And I was struck by how, I guess I hadn't really thought before about what Rosa Parks must have been like, but I, I would have assumed that she was kind of this fierce, larger-than-life character because you kind of think, you were conditioned to think that the kind of person who can who can affect that great a change and take that powerful a stand must also be very bold and very fierce and very outgoing. And she wasn't. And I was really struck by that, you know, the, the quiet power that she had. And then I started looking around and I realized, gosh, you know, so many of the transformative leaders of the 20th century had had this kind of quiet, um, uh, more unassuming style. Yeah. Uh, many of our great creative minds. And yet, and yet our kids and, and us as grown-ups are, are sent the message that we shouldn't be that way. Well, right. You, you talk at one point about sort of the, the winning of the culture of personality over the culture of character. And in this new sort of culture of the extrovert, humility is lost, right? Yeah, I believe humility is lost. And, and, and I think it's getting worse with every passing moment, really. Um, I mean, we know there, there are studies coming out now of young people that, that show that um, young people nowadays are much more self-centered and narcissistic and much less empathetic than they mm -hmm. were in years past. And it's like, it's getting worse every year. Why do you think that that's happening? I think it's happening because uh, this is a culture that so prizes self-presentation and that is basically coaching young people from the day they're very little um, mm -hmm. to, to be thinking about how do I present myself? How do I make myself larger than I really am? You know, the phrase larger than life is something that we are conditioned to aspire to in mm -hmm. one way or another. We're not thinking as much about um, how can we be sometimes smaller than life is actually a good thing. You know, I, I think that shyness is a kind of civilizing force because a shy person, what, what they're doing instinctively, they're saying, I care so much about you and your opinion that I'm giving you the power to make me feel bad if you don't think highly of me because mm -hmm. I care about you. It's a kind of instant regard for other people. Yeah. And, um, and yet... It's interesting to me, you know, one of the things I found in the year since my book came out is that, if anything, I think shyness is even a more pejorative term in this culture than introversion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You talk in the book about the difference between shyness and introversion. Can you define that a little bit? Yeah, so shyness is about the kind of fear of social judgment, you know, the, the, the fear that other people are thinking poorly of you. Um, so you're about to go on a date or a job interview or that kind of thing. You're unduly worried about it. That's a shy person. Um, an introvert is somebody who gets their energy from being, who feels most alive, most energized in environments where there's just kind of less stuff going on, you know, quieter yeah. environments. And the book is really about both of these states of mind. Well, I, I think, and we were talking a little bit earlier about um, this idea of selling yourself, and, and you talk in the book about uh, groups like Toastmasters who teach people to sell their stories, and it felt to me like it was sort of lies winning over the truth a little bit in terms of the way that we, we relate to each other and how honest we are with each other. Well, you know, it's funny. I have a kind of complicated relationship to that, because I, I wouldn't say that exactly. You know, um, I mean, my own experience was I had this book coming out, right, a year ago, and I knew I wanted to be able to go out and speak about it. You know, I'm really passionate about the ideas, and I didn't want my fear standing in the way, right? So I actually started going to Toastmasters meeting. I, I embarked on what I called my year of speaking dangerously, where right. I, I was going like, to confront my fear of public speaking once and for all. And, um, and so I don't think I was being taught how to lie on stage. I mean, I, I actually think what happened to me was that I got more and more comfortable so that I could be... A tr telling the truth and, and more and more authentic on stage. So, uh, you know, I, I think these things are complicated. Yeah, it's, yeah, you sort of have to try to sell to show your authentic self. Yeah. But it can't yeah. be so authentic that they see your fear. It's a tough line. Yes, it is a really yes. tough line. It is. It's interesting because they talk a lot about, you know, using the personal power stuff in, in business. And you also went to Harvard Business School, which I found fascinating. And um, 
there was some advice that you listed in the book that I was just appalled by, um, one, that they get from Harvard Business School. One is, speak with conviction, even if you believe something only 55%, say it as if you believe it 100%. And the second is, don't think about the perfect answer. It's better to get out there and say something than never get your voice in. What does that do to businesses when people are just spouting and not thinking about it? Yeah, so this is a very problematic and complicated thing. I, I mean, I went to Harvard Business School at first because I was chatting with a friend of mine who had graduated from there, and he said, you know, you must go spend some time at, at HBS. It is the spiritual capital of extroversion. Um, so you've <laughs> got to go check it out. And so I did, and... Um, you know, it, it's a school that is training our future leaders, business leaders and civic leaders. And, and the idea behind what you were just talking about is that if you are a leader, there are going to be times where you have imperfect information. And then you're faced with this really complex question of, should you act in the face of the imperfect information or should you wait to get more? And if you wait, you do run the risk of having people start to lose confidence and people yeah. losing morale. So it's a complicated question. And Harvard Business School comes down, I would say, pretty squarely on the side of people will lose morale, you'd better act, and so we are going to train you to project this kind of certainty. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to train you in class. You know, Classes are graded 50% based on class participation. And um, I just wanted the percentage this. to be higher than 55%. You know, if you're going to act, I just wanted it to be 70%, oh. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Rather than 55%, right. sure, right. but right. Uh, I, yeah. I didn't attend Harvard Business School. That is obvious by my car. It's a Civic. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and another thing that you talk about um, in business is this shift with businesses to group dynamics, to open spaces um, in, in a country that sort of embraces that collaboration and groupthink. What are the downfalls of those ideas? First of all, we know that this isn't just introverts, but extroverts also um, produce more ideas and better ideas. We know this from 40 years of research. When they are brainstorming on their own, you know, sitting by yourself, just thinking of as many ideas as you can come up with, you come up with better ideas when you're on your own. So... Um, we also need the process of exchanging ideas. It's not to say that group work is, is entirely useless, um, but we need much more of a hybrid process than we have now. Um, and then for introverts in particular, they really, really require um, chunks of solitude in their day. Yeah. And when they're not getting it, they're not thinking as deeply or as creatively. So we've got this entire um, educational system that is now based around group work, um, an entire workforce that's based around herding people into teams and, and compelling them to work collectively all the time, you know, in big open plan offices. And we're not getting the best of people's brains by doing that. So yeah. it's not in anybody's interest. Well, and you also talked about groupthink in terms of the loudest voice being heard instead of the most informed voice being heard, and that that's problematic in terms of getting to the right outcome. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure if you think of a group situation that you've been in recently, you see this dynamic of groups tending to follow the opinion of the most assertive person in the room. That's just what happens. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of crazy when you think about that, that... It, it, if the objective is to come up with the best idea or the most creative idea, it's crazy to think that the answer to that would be to gather a group of people together and see what comes out. Because really, you're just hearing generally from one person, you know, that most assertive person whose idea kind of percolates to the top. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to me that you wrote this book and you did this TED Talk, and it was amazing. If you can find it, just go to, to I think it's TED.com and, yeah, and, and do a search on Susan Cain. And um, you were just extremely comfortable, it seemed, doing that. But, ha. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have written this book, and now you have to go around the country and talk to big groups of people about introversion. How, how has that been for you? Do you feel like more of an extrovert now? How has that changed you? No, I mean, not at all. Um, I, I'm more comfortable with speaking than I used to be. But in terms of, you know, no offense to all of you, but like on any given day, I would much rather be sitting at home with my family or, um, you know, sitting by myself in a cafe with my laptop. I, I, I have come to really love the speaking and especially the, um, you know, the ability that it gives me to connect with people and get yeah. ideas across. But no. I think you can get comfortable but still kind of um, maintain your underlying stripes. Yeah. It's interesting because you were saying you were feeling like, like uh, it's kind of getting worse in, in terms of the way that we're going um, in terms of extroverts and, and introverts. And I don't know if you – have you read the work of Sherry Turkle? She wrote a book called The Flight from Conversation. And it's about how technology has sort of taught us that – 
solitude is a problem that needs to be solved, and we solve it with things like our phones. What do you think is lost when we lose time alone to ourselves to think? Well, you know, I think that we've always known that there's a kind of transcendent power to solitude. I mean, all of, all of our religions have known this. You go into poetry, you know, you have William Wordsworth wandering lonely as a cloud. He was doing that for a reason. Um, so we're losing our ability to kind of connect with a deeper part of ourselves. And then there's just the, the, the phenomenon of the fact that we are all such intensely social creatures. Introverts too, all social creatures. So we instinctively pick up on other people's ideas. Um, so you can't be around other people without kind of picking up on what they're thinking and feeling, yeah. which makes it literally impossible to truly know what you're thinking and feeling. So if you really want to be creative, you have to be willing to absent yourself um, some of the time. And this is why, you know, when, when psychologists look at who have been the most intensely creative people over time, they almost always find people with streaks of introversion, you know, people who can go and remove themselves. Yeah. Um, the book is The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. The author is Susan Kane. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you I so, so much for joining it. us. Really Susan Kane, everybody. That was author Susan Kane talking to our own Courtney Hameister. I'm Luke Burbank. And you, right this very moment, are listening to a special edition of Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, creating a radio show with a knowledgeable staff like ours. Well, that requires a lot of hunching over laptops and then, of course, complaining about it afterwards. But I'm happy to report it is not too late for our Quasimodo-like writers. That is because Ergo Depot has human-scale chairs and office furniture designed to promote circulation and good posture. More information can be found at www.ergodepot.com. We'll be back with more Live Wire in just a minute. Welcome back to this special edition of Live Wire Radio. All right, more about thinking differently. According to researchers, what's happening in improvisational jazz pianist Alfredo Rodriguez's head when he's doing this is that he's somehow turned off the mental editors in his prefrontal cortex. And what that means is he doesn't do any second guessing. So what he can do is sit down like he did on our stage at the Alberta Rose Theater at a piano set a timer for four minutes, and just, like, play whatever comes into his head, and also his fingers. And here's what it sounded like when he did that.
That was jazz pianist Alfredo Rodriguez. Alfredo was discovered at the Montreux Jazz Festival by none other than Quincy Jones, who said, quote, I have been surrounded by the best musicians in the world my entire life, and he is one of the best. If you want to hear more from him, you can always go to his website, alfredomusic.com. You're listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, whose 365 everyday value products run the grocery gamut. From whole grain flours and shade-grown coffee to organic milk and frozen veggies, everyday values are valuable every day. Seriously. More information at wholefoodsmarket.com. All right, next up we've got a studio session with a woman who had no choice but to think differently. Now, a couple of months ago, Dr. Temple Grandin, one of our foremost experts on autism, came through Portland with her newest book called The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum. She came down to Mississippi Studios for a conversation with our producer and former host of the show, Courtney Hameister, about why learning to take turns is important, why she doesn't like to be hugged, and, well... Courtney asked her something that made her say this. I don't want to talk about that because it derails all the other things I'm interested in talking about. They taped the conversation in front of a small, invited audience of our Livewire listeners. Here is that conversation. Welcome, Temple. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit um, about your history and um, just autism in general. I know that autism manifests itself differently in each person. How did it manifest in you? Well, I had no speech when I was two and a half, three years old. I had no social behavior. I mean, I was severely autistic. Autism is a very, very big spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, you can have a kid that has no language. And if you get them into early intervention, a good percentage of those kids, you can get them talking. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got a child with no speech delay, just kind of a quirky, nerdy, socially awkward kid. And that's Asperger's kids. But they're changing the diagnosis so that that's... um, uh, now just going to be called social communication disorder. You see, at one end of the spectrum, you've got some brilliant musicians and artists and Einstein who had no speech until age three. At the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have somebody who's going to remain a lot more severely handicapped. Actually, you were diagnosed in the 1950s, I believe, and your mother was actually told that she should probably have you institutionalized, but she did not do that. And there were a lot of other ways that she did some things well, differently. What I were those ways? Well, I was a young child, it was... Um, I went, first of all, to a neurologist when I was two and a half years old. The neurologist didn't even know what autism was and referred me to a very good little speech therapy school where they did the same kind of therapies they do today. Then when I was three, my mother hired a nanny who played constant turn-taking games with me and my sister. I can't emphasize enough the importance of early educational intervention, but I was the kind of kid where before they used to just you know, put them away in institutions. Yeah. You know, and then you have the more milder, socially nerdy, awkward kid, but I get worried and some of these real mild, quirky kids, and they get different labels, autistic, ADHD, dyslexia, learning problems. I've seen too many kids sort of becoming their label. Mm-hmm. Autistic kids tend to get fixated on their favorite things. Well, I don't want autism to be the thing that they're fixated on. Yeah. It's a really important part of who I am, but I put being a college professor first. And when I was in high school, it was horses and optical illusion rooms mm-hmm. were my fixations. <laughs> well, and, and you did when you were in high school. Um, you stayed with your aunt, and she was on a farm, and that is what you really attribute to the fact that you got into animal behavior. Do you think that you would have found your way into animal behavior if, if that hadn't have happened to you? It's possible, but I wouldn't have gone to the West because when I was in college, I did take a really good animal behavior class and, and was really interested in seeing back in those days in the 60s, they all believed in all BF Skinner, operant conditioning, everything is operant conditioning. I never believed that mm-hmm. because my animal behavior class, uh, Dr. Evans was a reptile specialist. And of course, reptiles have a lot of innate instinctual behaviors. They're not all just stimulus response. Uh, one of the things that you saw with the cattle on your aunt's farm was that when they were completely immobilized um, and by this sort of metal enclosure that sort of hugged them, that they became completely calm. Well, there was a tendency, you now that's like a squeeze shoot for holding cattle for the vaccinations, which is shown really accurately in the Claire Danes movie, HBO movie, um, pressure over large parts of the body for some individuals, not everybody, can be calming. I'm not going to say that every animal totally relaxed, but for some yeah. animals... It tended, you know, deep pressure over large parts of the body can have a calming effect. Well, what was interesting to me about this, because you actually then created a machine like that for yourself. Yeah, I did. Um, a squeeze machine, or some people call it a hug machine. 
how is it that because I know that that at least according to to the film, um, you didn't like to be hugged by humans, but for some reason the hug from this machine I could control you. it. I could control it. You see, one of the problems is sensory oversensitivity. Boy, in this one area where they need to be doing research, autism and other disorders is problems with sensory sensory oversensitivity. What are some of the best treatments? Actually, they not wanting to be hugged was easy to desensitize. See, I could control the machine mm-hmm. where a person would just keep on doing it. Or there's problems with loud noise. Sometimes a child can learn to tolerate the noise if they turn on the horrible smoke alarm you know, that hurts their ears, where they initiate it. Right, or you said that you feared balloons, but if you, if you could pop them yourself, you weren't, that, that wasn't as... Well, you see, the way to do it would be to blow it up really small like this and I pop it and then gradually make it bigger. But if the child initiates the dreaded sound... It can sometimes be desensitized. Now, I still have a problem with scratchy clothes. That's not going to go away. That's something I have to tolerate all, all day. Mm-hmm. One thing in the book that is uh, a little bit controversial is, the, is this issue of vaccines. I don't which, even want to discuss that. You don't want to talk about no, it? I don't want to talk about that because that derails all the other things I'm interested in talking about. And I found that um, when people get too irrational about an issue, I don't talk about it. Uh, can, I'm backing off of that one. Well, <laughs> and, the, and the book doesn't say very much about it It anyway. doesn't, actually. You don't really take a stance on no, it. No, I don't. What, what I found interesting was that was just this differentiation that I hadn't heard of, which is differentiates between regressive oh, autistics. Oh, that I can talk about, yeah. Yeah, and, well, and, uh, and, and people who are born autistic. Can you uh, well, just talk about that Well, the thing is, that I was the kind of kid where it was obvious, uh, you know, I didn't start talking. And then when my speech came in, it came in gradual. Another kind of kid is he seems to be more or less normal, and then around age two, they lose language. Yeah. And that's what's called a regressive type of autism, and that has been documented. Yeah. See, one of the things, I think, as you start studying more in autism, is there's, a, on the high end of the spectrum, deficits in the circuits in the brain for social relatedness. Um, that's sort of a core deficit. You get on the other end of the spectrum, it may be some other things, more of these sensory jumbling and sensory problems. And... It's not. It's a very, very uh, variable um, a spectrum. Yeah. You know, I had a larger fear center, but there's others that don't. I want to make that real clear. Well, and and just talking about the different the spectrum and the types of uh, of autism that there that there are. You actually said in the in the book there there's been this increase in autism diagnosis over the past would you say decade or couple yep. of decades? And you actually say that one of the reasons uh, is that there is a typo in the DSM. Can you explain that? Well, it was so, instead of saying you had to have this symptom and that symptom. It said this symptom or this symptom. But there's also, the DSM has changed over the years. And I got a chapter in the autistic brain that goes over the whole history. Yeah. And it started out, you know, early on, they just mentioned it. You know, then in the 80s, to, have, to be autistic, you had to have speech delay to be autistic. Then in the early 90s, they changed it, where then Asperger's was included, where you had the social awkwardness, but you did not have to have speech delay. You see, that already widened the diagnosis. Yeah. Well, this this kind of differentiation and and uh, the difference in the in the definition of the diagnosis, the the DSM diagnosis um, is used somehow to regulate whether or not certain children need access to resources. Well, right? that's right. You see, one of the reasons in the school system today to get any kind of special ed, you got to have a DSM diagnosis. Right. And and yeah, to get services, and there's a lot of kids that need services. And if you have a young child that's not talking, don't wait. I don't care what the diagnosis is. You need to just start working with that kid. Lots of one-on-one teaching, doing little games where you take turns. Why does the turn-taking, why is that significant? It's very significant. They got to learn to inhibit a response. You know, when they grow up, that's called executive function. Mm -hmm. You've got to learn how to wait your turn. And that was taught with these board games. Mm -hmm. And they would just say, I start to want to shake the dice on the Parcheesi board. And my mother would say, You've got to, it's Izzy's turn. You've got to give you, let your sister do her turn. They've got to learn how to like wait in line, take their turn. It's a very basic skill they need to learn. There's always research going on about how to best diagnose, how to best help. And one of the things that you that, that I found interesting in the book that you talked about was this issue with getting effective data on autism on autism because there's issues with autistic people self-reporting kind of their own experience. Can you talk about well, some of the challenges? Well, I think a lot of people that self-report probably are on the spectrum. It is a behavioral profile. And if you meet the behavioral profile, then you're autistic. It's not a medical test. You know, even depression and things like that. And some of the DSM things, they've broadened the uh, category and made it bigger, like ADHD and, 
and um, grieving, you know, normal grieving now is getting called, you know, clinical depression. Right. Now, I think one of the reasons they tightened up the autism diagnosis is because it's just gone sky high. And then some kids that used to be uh, labeled intellectual impairment are now getting labeled autistic because they can get services. You see, a lot of this, this whole DSM thing, I'd say it's half science and then the other half is insurance code bickering mm-hmm. and um, doctors arguing around in a conference room. And, you know, I got interested whenever a new brain scanning technology came out to go try it out. And there's, um, you know, I have the classical deficits in the social circuits. There's actually been a brain scan around 15 years that will diagnose that. Now, if you work on the social stuff, then some of those circuits normalize. See, then you get into plasticity. I still had some bandwidth left on my speak what you see and speak what you hear circuit. Yeah, so I learned how to talk. Mm-hmm. But if the circuit was totally gone because it didn't grow, then, then there are some that do not learn how to talk, even with a very intensive therapy. So parents of these kids just need to recognize that they do have some control over this. Well, we've got, it- I can't emphasize enough early intervention. If you have a two-year-old or three-year-old that's not talking, the worst thing you can do is nothing. I don't care what he's diagnosed. You've got to just, uh, my speech teacher would hold up a cup and she'd say cup. And then she'd go cup. She'd stretch it out because I, I didn't hear those hard consonants. And then I'd try to go, and I you know, and then she'd praise me. Well, used, that's called applied behavior analysis today. It was called Miss Reynolds' basement speech therapy school <laughs> before. <laughs> and she did the same things that teachers are doing now. And a lot of turn-taking stuff. But what the research shows, and there's other methods like the Denver START model, is you've got to get those intensive one-on-ones. And then you also have to be careful about the sensory issues. There's some individuals that cannot tolerate fluorescent lights. They can see the flicker. I can't wait until those get phased out. That bothers about 5% of the population. Uh, One place I'd like to see research done is on the sensory issues because they range from being nuisances to being very debilitating. Mine are just nuisances now. The other problem you have when you try to study sensory issues, if you label somebody with autism... Maybe only 10% of them have this fluorescent light problem. The others don't. Okay, another one's got smell aversions. There's others that don't. These sensory issues are very, very variable. So if you're going to study sensory problems, you've got to assign subjects to treatments based on what the sensory problem is. Like, okay, if you're one of the ones that bothered by fluorescent lights, and if I, when you read this, you see the print jiggling on the page, you know what can help that lots of times? Very simple. Try different pastel-colored papers, Try changing colored backgrounds and fonts on your computer, and sometimes pale colored lenses. I have seen students, both autism and non-autistic, helped by this, but it's only 5 or 10% of people with an autism label, and some of the dyslexics, it's 5 or 10% of them. Well, and one of the things that you talk about in the book is the diagnosis is important, but maybe don't be so concerned about the diagnosis or the cause and really treat Treat the symptoms to make their lives better. We gotta treat the symptoms. Where's the kid having a problem? If he's having problems with social stuff, well, first of all, we gotta just teach the kid what the eye signals mean. We gotta just work with them on teaching them social skills. If they've got, you know, got problems with reading comprehension, oftentimes they can decode just fine, but they don't pick up, you know, more nuanced kind of things. Like, let's say I have a sentence that says Jim and John went to the store, and when John bought a shirt, and the other one bought the model airplane. And if I ask um, which one bought a model airplane, they'll get that one right. But then if I asked, was an article of clothing bought? Okay, you see, that's moving one step away. And then I might get into something a little more abstract, like we talk about explorers up in Antarctica and about this heavy coat the guy's wearing. And then the question might be, are winter clothes required in Antarctica? See, I'm getting another level of abstraction there. Yeah. And they've got to learn that by specific example. And I had a fabulous English literature course in college where we studied a little bit of Homer, Shakespeare, you know, all the different classics. And the professor explained what the emotional meaning, what the author was trying to explain. Well, that gave me templates I could use for analyzing other literature. See, that's bottom-up thinking. Mm -hmm. Everything is learned by specific example. You want to teach this kid what up is? You've got to use several different examples. I went up the stairs, up the ladder. The plane went up in the air. I put my hand up in the air. Well, and, and I, I also wanted to go back to, you, you talked a little bit earlier about um, brain scans that you'd had, and you've actually volunteered for seven or eight of them so that you can learn more about your, your own brain. What have those scans taught you about your brain? Well, I always get asked why I want to do them. Well, why do people want to explore? I just watched this wonderful music video, Space Oddity, of the astronauts singing about, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know the Colonel Tom, you know, Major Tom song. David Bowie song. David yeah. Bowie song. I thought that was just wonderful. That's exploring. 
of you know, my cerebellum smaller than normal. That would explain why I could never do the perfect Christie's in skiing. Because the cerebellum has to do with motor function. Yeah, and balance. And I've got a whole bunch of weird visual circuits. And my language output circuits had lower bandwidth. That might explain my speech delay. My left parietal area is full of cerebral spinal fluid. That might explain what happened to algebra. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot remember long strings of verbal information. I have to write down sequence. Otherwise, I just don't get it. And getting back to the innate skills, Bill Gates and I had total access to the state-of-the-art 1968 IBM teletype terminal for programming. Took the class. It was just hopeless. I wanted to program the computer, but I just couldn't do it. I just didn't make any sense to me. Because for things to make sense to me, I've got to see a photorealistic picture in my mind. And in my book, The Autistic Brain, I talk about the different kinds of minds. And I've talked about that before in the TED conference. But what I've done in the Autistic Brain book is I've found scientific research that actually supports that there's two kinds of visual spatial thinking. There's the object visual thinking, like what I have. Like when I design a cattle facility, I can actually see it in my mind. And then there's the more where you are in space pattern thinking, the more mathematical thinking. And they use different um, brain circuits. You've given so much advice to so many kids, and you've been doing this since the 80s now, right? What for you has been the most gratifying thing about this work? I get very gratified when I have a mom come up to me and says, well, my kid's in a great job now because of you, or my kid graduated from college because of you, or I had one mom, real low-income mom, came up to me, and her um, non-verbal, low-functioning son couldn't sleep. And I had a thing in one of my other books on the way I see it about acid reflux problems. She said, oh, I gave the kid acid reflux medicine. Now he sleeps through the night. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. You know, I find that that sort of stuff is really gratifying. One of the things you've got to do with these kids at all levels of the spectrum is you've got to stretch them. Remember one thing, no sudden surprises. You cannot do sudden surprises. That will cause total panic. But when I was afraid to go to my aunt's ranch, mother said, well, you go for two weeks, you can go all summer. She wasn't letting me not go. There's choices. But becoming a recluse in the room was not going to be one of them. When I didn't want to go to a Friday night movie night at my boarding school, I had a choice. Go to Friday night movie night or be projectionist. But not going was not going to be one of the choices, and I became the projectionist. You've got to stretch them just a little bit outside their comfort zone, or they're not going to develop. Yeah, so you've got to walk a little bit of a fine line. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, what's next for you? What's your next book? What's your Well, right now I'm working on revising my purely academic book on livestock handling and transport, and I have a lot of co-authors in that book. I've mm-hmm. got all the chapters in except one, and I've got to get that finished up. I've got some new graduate students coming in, working on some interesting projects right now on, on uh, mama, calf, uh, mama cows and individual differences and in how mamas uh, protect their babies. I uh, just had a student finish up a study on that. Uh, we've done some research on little hair whirls and horses and cattle that have a hair whirl up high on their forehead tend to be more excitable. That's completely <laughs> well, that's, fascinating. Uh, some of the things, you know, interesting things we've worked on. Yeah. Working on some things on improving cattle handling at feed yards. Um, so you've got some things going. Yeah, got that's some things right. on the burner. Well, we look forward to seeing all of that. I'm so sorry that our radio audience can't see your amazing shirt. Um, it's, this, uh, it's this wonderful blue shirt. It has two cows on it and then two cows that are diamond-covered, really. Well, um, it's bees. It's not diamonds. Actually, <laughs> actually, I got this shirt from Thailand. I just got back from Thailand, and I was working with the McDonald's animal welfare auditors for the whole Asia-Pacific region, and we went to three different slaughter plants, uh, beef, uh, pigs, and chicken, and I was teaching them how to do the animal welfare and humane slaughter audit. Great. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Temple Grandin. This has been a LiveWire studio session. I'm Courtney Haumeister. That was Temple Grandin talking about subjects she covers in detail in her new book, The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum. That was just a short piece of a longer interview. If you want to hear the interview in its entirety, and believe me, you do, please visit our website, livewireradio.org. You're listening to a special edition of LiveWire Radio brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing a company whose core values include environmental stewardship, enhancing people's lives, and creating beers that pair well with people. More information at newbelgium.com. We'll be back with more LiveWire in just a minute.
This is Live Wire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're talking about thinkers who made us think differently. And if you talk about a great thinker that we maybe missed the most last year, we'd have to say it might be David Rakoff. His loss has been made all the more poignant by the release this summer of his posthumous book called Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish. It's a book completely written in verse. Now, he came on the show back in 2010 and talked to Courtney Hommeister, and he talked pretty convincingly about the concept of the defensive pessimist. Take a listen, but be warned, he makes a compelling case. You may find yourself as a defensive pessimist after this interview. Didn't you feel like there should have been another beat there? I'm so stoned from being in the green room. I was doing, this is so much hipper than anything that I've ever done. (laughs) By this time of night, I'm usually in bed, so I just got into it. I've been um, uh, snorting rails of coke off of, oh. of the drummer's <laughs> so I'm, uh, I didn't even, yeah, I didn't yeah, even hear it. didn't Sorry. even hear it, yeah. Um, well, welcome to the show. That'll be usable radio for you, won't it? <laughs> Sorry, forgive me. Yeah, we're just going to start. Well, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for it's having me. It's lovely to have you here. We have wanted to have you on the show for so long. We're big fans. Um, I, I talked at the beginning of the show about Barbara Ehrenreich's book, and uh, there's your book, and, and do, do you think that right now we're ushering ourselves into an age of pessimism? I think if you think about what's going on, I can't imagine we could be in any other kind of age. <laughs> but then again, I thought that eight years ago, and I thought that 12 years ago, and I thought that during Reagan, so... I'm always wrong. I literally have my finger off the pulse. I never know. Right, right. What, what made you write a book? I mean, you had to research. You did a lot of research for this. Mm, yes, I did, didn't I? <laughs> Late nights in the library. Trips. Different sources. I believe you went to Utah, didn't you? I did go to Utah. That says a lot. Uh, far afield I went, <laughs> yes, in my quest for the truth. Right, right. What, what sets you off on this idea to write a book about pessimism? Well, it was twofold. One was my editor at Doubleday uh, very cleverly pointed out that I uh, seemed to have trouble accessing pleasure. And so he thought that that might be a good filter through which to do the next book. You know, my essential, not even capacity to experience joy, but... Uh, some reluctance to wholeheartedly jump into it. Right, right. <laughs> Except for tonight. Of course. Right. Which you, we, we really appreciate that you jumped right in uh, with the band. So w- one of the ideas in the book that you discuss is called defensive pessimism. Yes. Can you explain how that works? Uh, well, it, it's not mine, uh, my term. And in fact, I don't even know if it's the term of Julie Norm, who's a psychologist uh, who I went to interview that unleashed, you know, was the diving board for the whole book. Defensive pessimism is a kind of anxiety management technique. It's like all pessimism in that it begins with the presentiment of desire, the this will be a disaster. My right. dance recital will suck so bad. Right. Barry Manilow will <laughs> record, she ruined my song. Right. Yes. Um, that's the presentiment of disaster that all pessimists feel. Defensive pessimists differ from other pessimists in that where a mentally ill pessimist would use that as a pretext to go to bed, uh, the defensive pessimist views the worst-case scenario that they can, the worst that they could possibly make up, and they go through it detail by detail. You know, and you oppose it, you know, one little niggling detail at a time. Rationally, and you prepare for things that, that exactly. might go wrong as well. So, in fact, as you said, you had zero expectation. I think that's irresponsible. I actually think dread you brought yourself Dread to zero. Dread is responsible, right. I would go to negative three to negative five. Right. And that way, you're, you're literally almost never disappointed. Although, I have to say, I've been disappointed recently. In what? Can, can you talk about an instance? No, it's in personal. What? Oh, okay. But, uh, but... <laughs> now, in, in talking to all, these, all of these experts, where, do you, where did you find yourself? Did you go into it thinking, I'm, maybe I'm a clinically depressed in some way, or maybe I'm... I, well, I knew that I was a defensive pessimist, and in, indeed I was assigned the initial story for the New York Times Magazine precisely because of a kind of despairing quality to my writing. Um, that's why they sent me, obviously. 
I thought, though, that I was a little sadder than I actually am. I could not tease apart the strands of anxiety and sadness. So when I started that piece, which is the first chapter, it took me nine years to write because I could not find my way through that. It turns out you can be completely anxious and completely happy, which I'm very happy to say, I'm not as sad as I thought I was. I'm just anxious. Right, yeah, and anxious, <laughs> anxious makes you feel horrible. And it, 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 keep, it, it puts well, it an ugly filter on the world. It, yeah. it keeps you a nice person. I, you know, if, if, if that's what it takes to be a mensch, you know, then be as anxious as you want. That's the thing. It's like, I hate to say it, but like, I don't think Dick Cheney feels a lot of anxiety. I would, I would agree with that. So, you know, the, the head that lies happy on the pillow is, is not one you really want to be that close to. Right. Well, but I think that it's, it's, it comes back to the point that you made at the very beginning. If you're actually thinking about things, you're going to be upset. Yes, unless you're on the board of Halliburton. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. How could you be anything but, but that? But again, I've been wrong. I mean, you know, I was wrong in 1982 when I was a freshman in college. You know, I never, as I said, I would be in bed by now. But in freshman year in college, I thought, you're in New York, do something. So yeah. I went to Danceteria, which is a club. And, you know, I just hated it from the beginning. It was noisy and loud and the bathroom line was long. And there was some chick who was performing that night on a, you know, a stage the size of this, you know, and she stunk. And I just thought, you stink. And I couldn't wait to go to bed and, and just consign her to the dustbin of history. And it was Madonna. You know, right. so... <laughs> and then, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm a gay guy. I learned to love Madonna, obviously, but, but she was bad <laughs> that night. Uh, so I'm, I have a negative capacity to predict trends. Sure. I wouldn't bet on me, is what I'm saying. <laughs> In some ways, right. Um, before you go, I did want to ask you um, about... Are you familiar with Dan Savage's It Gets Better campaign? Yes. I was, I, in, in the book, you talk a little bit about your high school experiences. And I'm just wondering, certainly a campaign entitled it's Get, It Gets Better may go against your belief system. Um, but do you feel like a campaign like that, where, uh, where people that you look up to uh, told you that things would get better, do you think that that might have helped you back then? Yes, I wonder if I could have heard it. I, I, I love the campaign that they do, and I think it's really beautiful, and I saw their video, and I absolutely cried. But um, I don't know that I could have heard it at the time. But I don't also equate my narcissistic melancholia with anything like the danger that these kids are in. I lived right. in a big city. Uh, you know, I, I come from a liberal family. It was easy to be faggy where I was. Um, <laughs> I mean, it just was. You right. know what I mean? I'm not in danger. I wasn't in danger in that way. Yeah, I mean... D- but do you think that, that as, a, as a defensive pessimist, do you think that promising these kids that things will improve, is that a good thing to do? Yes, absolutely. It really does yeah. improve. I mean, getting older was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, if, if high school is good, you can pretty much guarantee someone that it's going to get worse. You know, those people Isn't for whom high school was great? interesting to see the people who peaked? Yeah. And now, oh... That's why they've never called me back. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you briefly, um, you talk about secrets in the book and how your mother was a psychiatrist, your father was a psychotherapist, so you were taught to be very discreet, and you are a very good listener. What do you think about what's happening right now with the Moth and storytelling series and how uh, forthcoming we are, we've become as a culture? I'm not comfortable with it, which is an obviously strange position considering that I write somewhat personal essays. Right. But I keep my life very inviolate. I'm not very comfortable with a lot of uh, disclosure. There are a lot of storytelling series in New York City going on right now that are just sort of like, basically, come and tell us the worst thing that ever happened to you. Or, you know, it's a new storytelling series, Unindicted Crimes. And it's like, (laughs) why would I tell you about a crime that I committed? Right. I don't want to go to jail. You know, it's the same thing. It's like, or it's like, here's the thing, horrible cringing. It's like, well, if I'm cringing horribly, I'll keep it to myself and eat secretly at home. You know, it's just <laughs> while crying. But it's not, I'm not super comfortable with the level of disclosure. Uh, I think that, you know, we're going to rue and there will be a market correction and people will just sort of keep it to themselves a little bit. And I welcome those days when I will have no career. Exactly. Well, we won't welcome it. Um, the book is half empty. It's a wonderful book. Highly recommended. There is a warning on, on the front. No inspirational life lessons will be found in these pages. Uh, 
David Rakoff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very us. much Absolute for having pleasure. me. I actually think Unindicted Crimes is actually a really good idea for a storytelling series, but I don't think anybody wants to disagree with Mr. David Rakoff, who very tragically was lost to us a year ago this month. Thankfully, though, he left one final book behind, Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish, is available at all of your fine booksellers and uh, even some of the not-so-fine ones. And folks, that wraps up this special summer episode of Live Wire Radio. We're going to be back on air with all new episodes starting on September 14th. If you are in Portland on September 7th, you got to join us at the Alberta Rose Theater for my maiden voyage as the new official host of Livewire. They've made it easy on me, though, scheduling some amazing guests for that night. Davey Rothbart from Found Magazine will be there, director Lynn Shelton, and Tao Win of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, and many more. Thank you so much for listening this week. We'll be back here next week to talk to you again. Our thanks this episode go out to Stephen Tobolowski, Susan Kane, Alfredo Rodriguez, and Temple Grandin. The show also featured an interview with the late, great David Rakoff, who is greatly missed by all of us. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners just like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. The show is written by Courtney Hameister and me. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house sound is by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. The show theme is written by our house band. Photography for the show by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.